So this is the Open Source Startup Podcast, and Tim and I started this to really help founders who want to build companies that have an underlying open source component to them, really understand how to be successful in doing that. And so as part of that, we wanted to talk to um, founders who have successfully been able to grow a company with an open source component. Um, and so this is uh, my co-host, Tim Chen, who runs a fund called Essence VC, and I'm Amanda, better known as Bravi at Cowboy Ventures. Um, and we're super excited today to talk to uh, Maxime Fatiev. And uh, Tim will do a quick kind of background intro on him. Yeah, so we're really excited to talk to Maxime Fatiev, you know, who is a founder of Temporal. Uh, this is a developer company that allows developers to build and operate resilient applications. Uh, and Temporal was birthed out of the open source project that Maxime was, was co-created at Uber called Cadence and has a ton of buzz raised from investors from Sequoia and Amplify. So we are super excited to talk to him about what Temporal and Cadence is about. Well, Maxine, maybe just to start, um, we can just get some context on you and kind of the origin birth story of um, of where kind of Temporal came from. And maybe start with, with Cadence and where, where that originally started. Yeah, um, thanks a lot for inviting me to the podcast. Um, so uh, actually, it started much earlier than Cadence, uh, probably. Uh, let me give you kind of a very short overview of the story. Um, I, I was working on the similar type of problems for like 20, last 20 years. And my co-founder Samar also been in this area from, for a very long time, starting from this talk at Microsoft. And um, so this is probably six or seven reincarnation of, uh, of uh, solutions uh, in this area, which I, I worked or was involved with. And uh, the most interesting one was that uh, I was tech lead for the simple workflow service at Amazon AWS, it's still a public AWS service, AWS SWF. And before that, I was tech lead for the Amazon messaging platform and backend uh, of the simple AWS simple queue service still uses that, I think still uses the design uh, internally. So I was uh, involved with uh, building this asynchronous applications in the service rendered architectures for a long time. And our team quickly realized that you need a high level abstraction like orchestration to um, actually build this uh, high scale uh, systems reliably. Um, and uh, Simple Workflows was born out of that idea. Um, later, my co-founder Samar actually went to uh, Microsoft and um, among other things, he built a durable task framework, which later was adopted by the Azure Functions team. And uh, now it is known as Azure Durable Functions which is kind of second reincarnation of that, a public reincarnation of that idea. And then uh, by coincidence in uh, 1995, uh, 1990, 2015, you see how old I am. Uh, 2015, uh, we uh, joined um, Uber and uh, office at Seattle and we worked on a few projects and two of them were Cadence. Actually before Cadence, we worked on Sharemi, which was a messaging system because we know how to build messaging systems. And then out of that project, Cadence was born. And Cadence initially was kind of the uh, new version of uh, based on the same ideas of the simple workflow and uh, durable function framework, but on completely different software stack and also as an open source project. And uh, we, um, and then we grew organically in, in three years, we grew from zero to hundred use cases within Uber using Cadence, absolutely bottoms up, uh, just developers adopting that. And as it was open source from the beginning, it started to get an external adoption from uh, um, a lot of companies like HashiCorp, uh, like uh, Coinbase, uh, like DoorDash, and uh, um, like and a lot of others. And we uh, kind of felt that uh, staying at Uber, we can 
drive this project forward. But if you really want to make it as large as 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 the kind of industry-wide wide, wide standard and the industry-wide phenomena, we have to build a company around that. And that's why we, uh, we quit Uber and started Temporal uh, in uh, 2018. And uh, since then, we are, we are kind of, we, we forked Karen's project uh, because uh, for all sort of legal and uh, practical reasons, uh, we wanted to have control over the project. And um, practically the, most of the original team runs with us right now. And uh, uh, right now, we are driving Temporal as the open source project. It's still a MIT license. Everything is open. You can download and fully use it. It's a very permissive license. Uh, but uh, the monetization strategy of our company is just uh, cloud service. Uh, so we are providing hosted version of uh, the open source solution. Um, and that's why we're not trying to break it and like and create weird licenses just because uh, we already kind of decided that our open source is open source. We want to be as open and successful as possible. But we are going to monetize through the hosted offering, which makes it very clear boundary uh, between our company and the open source. Awesome. And um, maybe going back to the origin story um, of Cadence, why why did you initially want to make it an open source project and, and not just something that was used internally at Uber? Uh, okay, that is interesting. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think my previous experience at Amazon uh, taught me that uh, if you want to make something which, which is lasting, you want to build make it open source. Um, uh, I joined Amazon first time in 2002. It was pretty long time ago. Amazon was a large company by, by then, but it was 800 developers only. Comparing to its current size, it's nothing. But uh, back then we were hitting, uh, like trying, we, we experienced a lot of pro, uh, pro, uh, problems that uh, a lot of companies are just experiencing right now, like large scale and distribution services and so on. And uh, Amazon actually came up with a lot of uh, very interesting solution, internal solutions to those problems. And those solutions were very interesting, but Amazon didn't open source any of that. And what was happening is that we come up with a solution and it's awesome. And we developed that. And then um, five, five years later, we see some open source project which kind of does similar thing. And we look at that and we kind of laugh at it. Okay, it's just a joke, right? It's not serious. And then like three years later, this open source project becomes mature, more mature. And five years later, my Amazon actually migrated the internal systems to that. Just because the internal project cannot have the, such a big life cycle, usually lifetime and the team and the resources to maintain that and to grow it over time. Even at such awesome and large company as Amazon. And again, obviously AWS changed the, the whole equation because they kind of build these things uh, as public services and can build them out. But as a project, like open source project, unless it's unless it's open sourced, any internal project almost in any company eventually will die. And that is my personal opinion. That's why uh, op uh, uh, opening up uh, Cadence from the beginning was very important to us because we believe that this project has lifetime beyond just Uber, for example. So when you initially started it, was the thought that you wanted it to last beyond Uber and create a company out of it at some point? And was part of making it open source just testing the true market potential outside of Uber? Or did the thought around it potentially becoming a company that only come after, um, after it had some pretty strong traction? Okay, every engineer probably wants to start a company at some point. But to tell the truth, I never was uh, thinking about it seriously. I never was thinking about startups seriously. I didn't know about venture at all. I've heard the names of most prominent uh, VC companies. Uh, I think I've, after I've got my seed round closed. Uh, so I, uh, I just didn't know like anything about this ecosystem. Um, I was like, yeah, maybe one day when it becomes very popular, we do something about it, but it was very, very like naive and not real. Uh, 
Um, so yes, uh, we, we can afford that it might be one day, but we just wanted to make it popular, uh, popular in the industry. And we believe that the, every company in the industry will use it eventually. And it will, I, I'm super sure about that. Um, so yeah, it never was uh, very serious. Uh, what happened is that we started to get very serious adoption by very serious <laughs> and very interesting companies out there. And, uh, and then, uh, then just uh, venture capital uh, VCs came to us and practiced that why are not starting the company? We're like, no, we are awesome at Uber. We get all these uh, good paychecks and everything is good. And we're getting uh, a lot of adoption within Uber. We are, we are, we are fine. And then uh, we started to think about it. We realized that staying at Uber, it, was, it wasn't possible to really grow as, as large as we want. Like most basic thing, you cannot have host service staying there. Even if you did awesome job with the open source project, unless there is a hosted offering, uh, it, you, you cannot, a lot of companies and you, uh, developers just won't use it or even try it. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear how you really want to have cadence or now temporal, right? Really be adopted by a lot more people and have a hosted service. And I, I think this leads to really the, the first question we really want to, get to know more of uh, after hearing your beginning story. Right now you sound like you raised funding, you know, you want to get started to start this company, you know, and you're, you're an engineer for most of your career, transitioning into, okay, I have to now run, learn how to run a company around this open source project. Uh, take us back, like what were you thinking? How did you think this is the right way uh maybe that we can start even like hey what what happens after you just raise money <laughs> you know what, what was your thinking right after the first three six months i have to figure you know what else right and you know what are the key lessons and uh, challenges you learned at that time so i think our path is a little bit non-standard um i think we were extremely lucky that as we say uh, uh startups are very hard but startups are very hard until you find a product market fit and then everything just clicks into place and a lot of things become much, much simpler. Uh, we were extremely lucky that we, we had product market fit before we started the company. And what it, what it, so far, that's why it wasn't very hard for us. Like for me, initially, especially for the first few months, nothing, not, not that much changed really. In the sense that um, I was reading the project, it was technical, pretty technical project. I, I kept doing the same thing. And the hardest part was obviously hiring. Um, we initially we tried to hire only locally in, in Seattle area in, in the Seattle area and I would say Seattle is awesome for startups but uh, for type of engineers that we needed we needed like this hardcore backend high distributed systems engineers back then uh, even uh, having good open source project just, just just they just wouldn't understand how like start how startups work especially economically like they don't understand the equity, they didn't understand like, and oh, oh, and we also talking engineers, which can get job at any of these uh, fine companies like uh, in a minute. Um, uh, and uh, obviously they pay very, very well there. Uh, so we initially it took us a very long time to hire our initial team. Uh, we, um, we are right, we, we started in uh, October, 2018, and we were 15 people until the end of the last year or like even uh, beginning of this year. And um, we were very lucky to hire awesome engineers, but it took us a long time to grow even to 15. Now we actually over 30 people, we were able to, wow. now it's much easier to hire just because there is so much traction in the open source and also there is so much content on the internet, just people know about us that right now we can close insanely good candidates. Like we, right now we are super happy about the quality of talent we have, but it, it, uh, I think hiring was the hardest. Otherwise uh, it's much easier than I thought. Um, um, and again, because we, we have traction, we have project which people like, so 
for us, it was just keep doing what we are doing, but in just a much more comfortable environment of uh, having venture money and uh, being able to control our destiny 100%. Yeah, and so I, I really intrigued by this, the, you know, the, the idea that you already had product market fit even before you run. What are the signs that made you understand, hey, well, actually, we already found this project is, is taking off. Like, what are, is the number of people pulling it down to use it? Is the number of people building applications? Like, tell us a little more at that state, right? Like, oh, wow, okay, we already have a pretty strong fit. What, what, what are the signals that, that lead you to that? I think signals are, um, it's interesting. Um, we didn't have very large community. We had probably around thousand people in our Slack when we left, uh, the com uh, we started our project. Uh, like we, we started the company. Uh, but these were, um, let's say hardcore engineers from top tier companies uh, using that in production for mission critical systems. And I'm not even talking about like thousands of uh, Uber engineers, which we are using cadence in production for hundreds of use cases uh, um, and for mission, mission critical systems. But even outside, we already had that community. And it was a very, very like a strong community of very strong engineers. And we, we were getting very positive feedback. That's why we like for us getting VC money was very easy because they just talked to our users. And when every user say, says that we love the product, we love what they're doing, it completely changed the way we think about the distributed systems. And we are using that in, in mission critical applications or planning to use in more mission critical applications. And yes, we are willing to pay money because these are mission critical applications. If you give us a hosted version of that, it was no brainer for any VC to fund that. And so, and the same thing is that we don't need to prove, like right now we don't have any marketing department. We don't have practically any sales. And we already have uh, at least a dozen uh, customers running on our as design partners on our cloud offering, for example. And we have very long wait list of uh, users which actually want to become our customers and run our platform without us doing any sales yet. Um, and um, and uh, like uh, and imagine when we actually have GA of our cloud and then we have real sales team and we start kind of and everybody knows about our project. Thanks to people like you <laughs> interviewing us and talking about that. Uh, I think it will be a very different conversation. But uh, yes, uh, I think uh, for us, it's just this bottoms up adoption and that no developers ever said that this is a bad idea. Uh, I think this was very important for us. Yeah, and so that's super intriguing that actually at the birth of your company, there are already a lot of people using it in mission critical system because that's a, that's a, very, that's a very strong signal that we tr they trust you or to trust the project. And I'm really intrigued, like what was the things uh, that allowed the developers to really trust this open source project? Because, you know, from my experience, right, you know, even if we open source anything, you know, these hardcore engineers running really important systems, they are always skeptical, right? Oh, this open source project only used by one company. <laughs> Can we really know how to learn and run it and operate it, right? And, and do everything uh, ourselves. What do you think was the keys to let these developers actually able to trust it? You know, and have that many people actually willing to pull it down and give it a try and eventually use, use in production that early. I think the first thing is usually the, it starts from the customer pain. Uh, people don't uh, try things just because they're fun. Okay, people do. Uh, but uh, reality is that there is very clear need for such systems. All right. Okay, we didn't describe, actually describe what it does, but uh, we can talk about it a little bit later. But basic idea is there is very clear customer pain. Almost every engineer in his life had to build uh, this type of system, and they always do ad hoc solutions. And practically everything they build ad hoc is, by definition, is worse than um, it's like 
if you, uh, in, uh, I, example I give is that uh, there was a time when databases weren't a thing. So everyone was just uh, writing their own files. And uh, every time you had to index your customer data, you would come up with file format to read it and index it somehow and so on and so on. And imagine right now you're trying to build an application and, I, and I, uh, somebody comes to your company and says, okay, I'm not going to use a database. I'm a smart guy, I will just write and read files. And you probably will think he's insane. And I think we are in the same category for the type of application that Temporal solves. Uh, before Temporal existed uh, and Cadence existed, you practically were inventing uh, things from the scratch every time. And uh, most of the engineers will use this ad hoc system, they build these ad hoc systems every day. And we are saying, you don't need to do that. You can just use something like uh, practically our solution and it eliminates 90% of the problems. And, it, and again, it's not only just because we did the right thing, it's also because there are like 60 man years, uh, like just engineering and like coding invested in this particular piece of code. And even if you get smartest engineer in the world, do you have like <laughs> another 10, five years and uh, so on? That is one thing. Uh, so I think this starts from the pain. Second is that uh, because uh, me and my co-founder Samar, we are doing it for 20 years, this type of systems. And this is six, as I said, reincarnation of that. So we already kind of iterated so much and we made every possible mistake out there. Uh, if like, if somebody comes to me and say, oh, why are I not doing this for? I would say, I mean, I'm not doing it, not because I, I, I know better, just because I already did it five years ago and it didn't work for this, this, this reason, right? Like you can always give me every design choice, which we didn't go follow. And I would probably explain it that I tried it. It's not that I just thought about it. Uh, it's, uh, it's another thing. And then running that at large scale at Uber for three years in production for highly critical systems also was a very good uh, um, proof that this project is not a toy. Uh, because if I just come up with something, put some, uh, and also it wasn't immediate. It, for the first two years, we didn't get any traction in the open source. We, we, we actually did the whole develop. It's not like we developed a Uber and then like we released it three years later, we actually developed it in the open source from the beginning. You can go into the Cadence repo right now in GitHub and see almost uh, from the first check-ins being in the open source, we actually developed there. And first like two years, it like almost nobody looked at that. Then at some point it got to the level of maturity and some people started to notice. I talked to a couple of conferences. So then it started to pick up, but it's not immediate. It's not like that. And we are, we are extremely grateful, like and help, uh, uh, happy that like, and, um, um, lucky that we've got Uber, which actually paid us good wages and uh, we were working there and being able to work on the open source project of this quality. Obviously Uber got something out of that. They have hundreds and hundreds of uh, applications running on top of this system. And uh, I think Uber got saved tons tons of uh, many years of uh, building these applications because they use cadence. But at the same time, uh, for us, it's certainly, if I were working from like, for example, if I got VC money and we're trying to build such a system and get such attraction, probably would take five years to get to where we were like at, at the beginning of the company. Because having like, I don't know, practically half a million lines of uh, production worthy high quality code, uh, <laughs> when you just start your company is not something uh, like people usually do. Yeah, and I think that's one of the benefits of starting a company after the underlying open source project has already been out in the wild because you have traction, you can get these signals of product market fit. Um, I think this is a good point to say, to really talk about like what what is Temporal? So it's to help build and operate resilient systems, but what does that mean? Who are the best users? Who are the, what are the best use cases? Like the, the kind of just quick pitch on Temporal. Yeah. I, uh, unfortunately, I don't have like free, free, uh, like um, one phrase which describes that. 
The reason is Temporal is technically a new uh, category of software. And I know it's everybody says they're a new category of software, um, um, but um, bear with me. Uh, one way to describe that is uh, called workflow engine. For example, simple workflow at, M uh, at Amazon is called simple workflow engine. Uh, the problem is that is um, people have very, uh, workflows are kind of tainted work. Like because there are so many existing legacy solutions which uh, make uh, workflows look something as a very, um, and let's say something which developers don't want to even touch. Uh, and, uh, and also um, people kind of think about workflow as sequence of something. Uh, but uh, temporal is more about um, stateful computation and preserving the state of the computation and uh, guaranteeing it. What I mean by that, or execution. Um, you may, uh, uh, for engineers, let me describe that in simplest terms. Imagine you have a, a process which executes some business logic and full state of that process is fully preserved all the time. Like all your local variables, all your threads, everything is fully preserved. What, what, what does it mean? For example, um, you, uh, let's say you make an API call and this API call can take five days. Uh, because your full state of the process is always preserved, it means that your block on this line of code, block for five days, five days later, it returns or throws exception if it failed or timed out. And then you go to the next line of code, but all your threads, all your local variables, everything is always preserved and always durable. So you can, any process can fail, you can do deployments, a temporal service itself can fail and restart and have deployment and whatever, but like your state is always there. Or you need to sleep, like uh, let's say most basic use case, you wanna send a notification, uh, customer signs up, one week later you send, wanna send email to the customer. Imagine how to design that right now. You probably need to build a few components to pull the database, use the timer service, whatever. In temporal, we'll just say sleep 30 days and then send email. And sleep 30 days is a blocking call. So you'll just block for 30 days there and then go to the next line of code. So it's a purely like way to preserve your code state. And it makes like a lot of these applications very easy because as your state is preserved, you need to talk to database explicitly because it's always durable. You, so no uh, object relational mapping. Uh, you, you can block for one month for half a year, whatever. So it means that you don't need to have a bunch of callbacks to reconstruct your state. And uh, so practically we just given you programming platform. So in our world, workflows are this kind of, uh, other way described as kind of durable actors uh, because they can also react to external events. So it uh, can be that you have workflow per customer, which always listens, for example, to, I don't know, you want to do airline type points. You're airline, you have customer, you create workflow per customer. Every time he can, uh, completes a flight, you send a message to that workflow saying, type complete. It increments a variable says, I've got that many points. As soon as it reaches 10,000, it sends you email saying, okay, you're promoted or call some service saying, uh, promote customer to the new tier. So this type of application, building them without temporal like, requires like all these distributed systems knowledge, requires queues, requires databases, requires polling, like all the error handling, retry, so on. We'll just take care of that. You write five lines of code, you get so much benefit, which you wouldn't get from like writing the whole thing from scratch with 10,000 lines of code. So that is kind of the basic idea. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically, um, let me see if I've got it right. So if you're building in a microservices world, you've got all this complex distributed system underlying architecture, and this is basically just making sure that it's fault tolerant. So if there's an error on the consumer or user end, you're you're a little bit shielded from that. So you don't, the whole system doesn't break for you. Yeah. And uh, uh, like uh, we cannot control the, the like real world, right? Low external systems, they, they can fail. But things like automated retries and whatever already built in. For example, you can retry forever. So if your downstream system says I can be down for a day, you can just say retry policy, keep retrying for like three days. 
uh, it's actually a real case. I, I remember one of our users was practically saying, oh, we have this downstream dependency, they're bank, they have bank holidays. They said our SLAs, we can be down for three days. What do we do? How do you retry for three days? You cannot go take Kafka queue and retry for three days. It just doesn't work this way. And we said, just set retry policy for three days or five days or whatever, we don't care. Uh, it's expansion retry policy, it will keep retrying and it's uh, just one like line of code to make it unveiled. then you call this API and this API will block for five days or three days and then it will unblock as soon as it's ready. So um, something which is as like, that is one thing. And then your code itself, you do, like people ask, what do I do if it fails? We say nothing, like, because you don't even see it. One way to call this model is like fault oblivious programming. So you're like, your program is even oblivious that faults happened because it's automatically just uh, resurrected on a different uh, piece of hardware as soon as something uh, happens. And you don't even need to think about edge cases. And then it's all transactional. So we don't have uh, edge cases, which you usually have with a lot of uh, such systems. And so um, going back to taking Cadence and turning it into a, a company that's separate from Uber, how does that process actually work? Because a lot of early stage founders that we'll talk to that are at like an Airbnb or an Uber and start a project, there's still a lot of question around, okay, how do you actually take that and start a company? Like what's Uber's response to that? You said you had a thousand Slack users um, on Cadence. Like what's the actual process of like forking Cadence, separating it out? And, and also to the extent you can talk about what Uber's response is to that. And if, if they're super supportive of these projects that are developed internally, then being turned into companies. Um, I cannot like comment what Uber is um, to tell the truth, uh, but um, I'm not sure that I don't think they're super happy just be, uh, mostly because the way we forked the project, we forked it uh, in a non-backers compatible manner. Uh, reason was that, um, well, we, we ran it at Uber for uh, four years uh, without uh, a, uh, making single uh, backers compatible change. And uh, never, like in all upgrades where life migrates, right? So you never had to bring system down to do upgrades. What it means that we accumulated a lot of technical debt, right, for these four years. And we knew a lot of things we wanted to do and we couldn't do them like, oh, we could do that, it would be very expensive to do in the backers compatible manner. So when we uh, decided to fork the project, we realized that it was our chance to fix so many things which we couldn't, or it would be very expensive to fix that we spent one year just on our fork. It's not that we just fork the project, say, oh, this is the fork. We practically fork the project and we spent one year before we said, this is production release of Temporal you can use. And uh, we, uh, we, but because we did that, it's not backwards compatible. And uh, um, that's why Uber, obviously, I, I doubt that Uber is super happy about that just because they cannot go and migrate, for example, their Cadence system to Temporal without downtime right now. And uh, they're kind of uh, stuck with what they've got. Um, and we absolutely would work with them if they decide ever to kind of go there. But uh, I don't think uh, right now it's not a seamless migration. Uh, that is, I think, the main uh, reason for them, let's say, being not, not, not happy. But otherwise, I think they get better quality software just because we risk company right now, which is much larger already than uh, the team at Uber we had working on that. Um, in terms of the uh, process, it's, uh, it's easy because it was a MIT license um, and uh, there is no any kind of legal, legal ways to stop us from doing that. You just go and uh, clone the repo and uh, you call it whatever you want and it's your project. Um, so um, open source makes it easier. Um, I think the hardest part was migrating the community because uh, when you have community, when you have real customers, when you have users uh, using that in production and you come to them and say, okay, here's the new thing, but it's not backers compatible. You need to do work to do that. And um, you need to kind of migrate to this thing. Uh, 
what helped is that uh, both me and my co-founder Samar, we are the heads of the projects. Every user knew us like practically personally. We talked to most people. Uh, they trusted us. They understood that uh, we are doing it for good and long term. Uh, this is uh, very good for the community and for the software. So they actually supported us very. Like we've got very good support from the community. They practically didn't get any pushback on uh, us forking it and actually moving it forward. So and also we added so many cool features on our fork. Like most basic one is that uh, we added gRPC support because before it was running on custom Uber protocol, which uh, didn't support, for example, even uh, TLS uh, like uh, like security. Any security we added security. We added uh, gRPC. We added a lot of tons of uh, very important features. So for users, it was very clear we migrating from Cadence to Temporal. And uh, this uh, helped us uh, practically right now, we don't have it, like practically most of the community moved in, uh, moved to us. And uh, right now we have most of the new users uh, start on now using Temporal right away. Mm. Got it, yeah. And so now talking about more of the business side, because now we, we talk a lot about with open source, how you have the community growing, what people are using it for. Uh, and now of course, you talk about hosted server actually pretty early. Right, you thought about doing a, a company, you know, you can't do it at Uber to have a hosted service. So you actually had to start a company around it. Uh, I don't think it will be probably that obvious what that hosted service should be. You know, should we, should we host, you know, some components? Should we host everything? You know, how do we even let people understand what a hosted service is? How, tell us a little how your thinking kind of started. Like, do you start a hosted service? Uh, what was there sort of key things you thought about? Like we should actually consider these sort of use cases or, and, and maybe even some lessons that you learned uh, thinking through those, those actual commercial product uh, around this. So uh, it wasn't hard to decision for us. And uh, mostly because uh, both me and my co-founder uh, came from uh, cloud providers. I never, I never worked for a company which was shipping uh, package software. Um, so uh, we kind of follow the Amazon simple workflow model. Uh, we have an API uh, and uh, our service just exposes an API. We don't run user's code. It's kind of similar, like for example, if you use, I don't know, databases uh, as a service, you, you, you don't host your application in the database, right? You just, like somebody just hosts database for you and just connect to that. We, we have the same thing. We give you SDK libraries. You write your, what we call workflows and activities using uh, your preferred programming language. Right now we support Java, Go, like PHP, Node.js is being added. We will let Python pretty so, like as soon as possible. But uh, the idea is that you, you use just our SDKs, you run that, then you provide a connection string and uh, you can connect to your local cluster, for example, running, running Docker Compose on your machine, or you can connect to like cluster you run in Kubernetes in your production, or you can connect to our cloud offering and it will work the same. And uh, uh, that's why, for example, we actually had a real case when uh, we had an open source user uh, who was running a production workload and uh, they were using our open source and uh, they were using backend. We use database for the backend. We, we, uh, we can run on multiple database types. So for example, we can run on Cassandra, we can run on MySQL, Postgres, and technically in the future, we can add other bindings. Um, so uh, people like that, we can bring on persistence. You don't need to kind of Open sources which created their own persistence kind of much harder to get adopted. Uh, but they, they misconfigured Cassandra. And what happened, they got data corruption. And it wasn't a problem of Cassandra, it wasn't a problem of Temporal, it was just like some misconfiguration like in the in the in the thing. And uh, at the end, we, we tried to help them and then like can you maybe we just give you like cloud uh, cluster in the cloud? 
And within one hour, they just uh, switch their production workload to our cloud without changing, likely, they only had to change configuration parameters and add uh, like certificate for MTLS to be able to connect to the cloud. And uh, that's why um, like our cloud offering is very seamless for people to migrate to. And, uh, and then they alleviate them from the need to run the actual cluster, especially at large scale, it's, it can be pretty daunting to run this uh, high, high workload um, like clusters. Got it, yeah, that's super interesting. And so how, what are you thinking about like, because typically when we have a hosted service, a lot of people have different sort of pricing model, right? One could be usage, you know, you have so many calls, so many transactions. It could be also like different tier of or features. If you're a larger enterprise, you might need different kinds of features. Do you have that or, you know, or does everybody get exactly the same, same tier? Um we don't have that defined very well. Uh, we, we do have something right now. I, I don't want to probably disclose that, uh, but, uh, we uh, we are use, uh, we are uh, mostly uh, usage based, but like we, we also can have some provision capacity and whatever. But uh, long term, I think we want to be as much usage based as possible because uh, there, there is workflow uh, like what we are doing is pretty easy, right? You, you're running these business transactions for us. How many transactions per second you run is very clear, uh, corresponds to the number of, of the resource utilization of the backend, and uh, also very clearly corresponds to your business value. So uh, I, I think usage-based, whatever it is, is something which we will embrace, I think, in the future. How exactly it will be, like what dimensions we are going to use, so we are trying to define that. That's why our cloud is not in GA yet, and we have what we, our customers, we call them design partners, because we work with them very closely to define our future. Uh, and we are super grateful to them, kind of sometimes they see some rough edges, but uh, in the future, I think, if you want to be, uh, obviously we want to be uh, uh, friendly to the enterprises, because uh, they want a predictability, but at the same time, uh, we want to make sure that uh, starting uh, starting with a small load is uh, is cheap. You don't want to be, be in a situation that we all need to sign this multi-year contract just to try us. And uh, we also might, might have uh, tiers for uh, small developers or small like uh, businesses, uh, because a lot of uh, usage of our open source comes from um, startups, which are like uh, or even individual developers. We have, uh, even on the cloud, we have uh, two people start up, for example, right now with one of our design partners. Well, maybe one day they will a huge corporation, but right now there's just two people uh, developing things. And from a, a go-to-market model perspective, so you talked a bit about having these design partner customers. How are you thinking about the go-forward model as far as like what how people are going to first get introduced to Temporal? Are you expecting it to be a lot more like larger design partner customers, some of which will um, you'll just kind of funnel through who's using open source or how are you actually thinking about what at this point, what the like standard go to market model is going to be for Temporal? Uh, we are also kind of trying to define that. So far, what we see is that we already got a very good adoption in uh, top tier corporations. We probably from top 100, quite uh, at least a dozen already using us uh, open source in some shape or form in production. Uh, and uh, we have pretty long list of open source uh, users via open source. Uh, so our top of the funnel is pretty good right now, just by that. We don't need any additional sourcing. And uh, so far, uh, almost everyone was, uh, was uh, it was almost bottoms up because uh, we are about code, right? We are about engineer writing code and making sure that he writes less code and he likes code he writes and, uh, and we deal with hard problems. Uh, so all adoption is bottoms up and we see kind of two types. One is like one engineer, awesome engineer finds our product, makes hackathon 
And then, oh yes, it solves this problem. I was able in one day to achieve something I wouldn't be able in a few weeks, uh, maybe months. And uh, he presents to his colleagues, they, they like it and they just uh, start propagating for the company. We even had cases when company was against that. Like, they, no, no, this is open source. We don't want to touch it. It's like new software. We cannot put core use cases on that. But it kind of bottoms up, goes to the point, and then uh, management gets involved, and then we start talking to them, and we can help them to adopt that. Um, other way we see it is that we, we go, and for example, uh, some companies have uh, like uh, architects, CTOs, and so on, which discover us, and then they just go to a team, say, can you do POC on that? And usually, if developers like that, and they usually like it, they come back to us and say, yes, we want to actually have more, uh, more adoption there. And um, some very large companies uh, which work with us, uh, they practically have teams formed around our open source, practically infra teams, which own operate, operating this at scale, uh, educating their own internal teams. They practically have these pretty large teams uh, just built around that to just make sure this technology is successful within the company. Um, and it kind of, uh, but it always starts bottoms up. I think uh, still uh, until like there is a specific developer team or team of developers which like that and we run it in production. I don't think we ever will go and say, okay, go to CIO and say, no, you need to buy like 2 million of this project, right? Just because uh, we think it's an awesome thing. No, it always will go for the developers. Yeah. And so given you have such a strong, or this is pretty much only go to market is bottom up, but you have such a strong developer adoption. Uh, do you try to amplify that once you start to have a company? Do you start to hire like an evangelist team, right? Or do you have like advocates or something around that roles in your company now? And, and how, how did you even look for these people and, and, and figure out what they should do in the first place? By the way, we are hiring these people now. So okay. If you're one of those people, talk to us. Uh, but we already have uh, quite a few very awesome advocates. We absolutely want to be there because still, uh, it's not household name, right? Like I, I think most developers still didn't hear about Temporal. Most developers still don't understand what we provide. They still don't even think about using us for their next project. Um, besides I, I hear all the time and somebody learns about what we do, they say, why well, I didn't have it like three years ago and when I started to my startup or did something. Uh, so yes, we have long, long way to go until everybody, at least every developer knows that we exist and considers us for their next project. This is our goal. We don't, we cannot force anyone to use us because again, it's open source, it's uh, absolutely developer-driven, but our goal is to be in the um, every ecosystem. This is the other part, we, we don't have SDKs in every language yet, um, but as soon as we have it, we, we, we are part, for example, we have PHP SDK, but I'm, I'm pretty sure like 99.9% .9 of the PHP developers never heard about Temporal. Uh, uh, Node.js, uh, we have alpha release of Node.js out. Um, it's still alpha, it's not production ready, but uh, as soon as we are there, I, I can imagine that Node.js community this time embracing us. And then, uh, but go in Java, uh, Java, we also, for them, we don't have uh, Spring Boot integration yet. Uh, it doesn't stop from a lot of people using us, but we are not like part of every ecosystem. We want to be part of every ecosystem out there. We also want to have developer advocates, which will go and explain that. Yes, we are working on that. And this is something we are investing pretty heavily. And again, if uh, somebody is interested to join us, we are hiring and, uh, we are a remote company now, so this is one thing. So it's uh, we started to try to be in Seattle only for some time, but now we, we are pretty happy about uh, going, getting remote because I think quality of talent we are able to hire right now went up so, so, so much that uh, I think uh, being remote is actually was a very, very good decision, uh, deciding to become a remote company. Mm. Well, for any potential developer advocates listening to this, they'll know. <laughs> to reach out. Um, the one thing we wanted to finish on is any advice that you would have 
for other founders or project owners who are thinking about becoming founders, things that you learn, things that you wish someone had told you early on? Probably if I knew how it works, I probably would start my company, first company probably like 15 years ago. Um, I actually built, uh, for example, I was tech lead for the Amazon messaging platform, which was PubSub based system, uh, which the whole backend of Amazon ran for like uh, 15 years. I don't know if what they do now, but like at least 10, 15 years, it was a backbone of all asynchronous communication, Amazon and AWS Simple Q service used that as a backend. I don't know if they still use it, but probably they do. And uh, we could open source it back then. And we didn't just because we other things came up and we just didn't. And uh, I, now I'm thinking, and it was like five years before Kafka was even conceived. And it was replicated storage, all the good things. Uh, so we absolutely could make it a very successful project back then. And I didn't do anything just because I had no clue about the whole, how easy it is actually to do the company if you have something of value. Um, obviously you need to have something which developers need. And if you get adoption, then the rest is not as hard as it looks from outside. It's a lot of work and uh, it's hard, but uh, again, it's uh, it's absolutely worth doing it. Yeah. Got it. So in simple words, start 10 to 15 years earlier if you can. <laughs> no, I think uh, everything has its own time. I think I, I'm certainly much better CEO right now than I would be 15 years ago. Um, some of my, my co-founder told me like uh, 10 years ago, I wouldn't work for you. <laughs> uh, because I, I i was i wasn't as well-rounded right I, I could be like i don't know i would interrupt people like in the middle right like i would i was very like in, i was like, like engineer like 100 engineer right like i just <laughs> didn't have like other parts of my brain developed i only was thinking about design right uh, so I, I think right now it's good time for me i think right now it's perfect time but at the same time i think if somebody is thinking is it good should i start it or not or like uh, will i get money or whatever i think uh, no don't hesitate just do it Awesome. Well, this was this was really fun. I think people will really be able to like learn a lot from your story. And we're both huge fans of Temporal. So um, thank you so much for for joining. Yeah. Thanks a lot for inviting me.